Hey, this is Mike Missanelli, and you're listening to the Feed the Embiid, the number one Sixers podcast in America. Yeah, 2-1 on his jersey, playing like he's number one. Best big in the league, and it's no debate. Booze from the haters, point him to the exit. I guess every franchise needs its process. Every franchise needs its own process. Coming down the lane, yeah, watch your head, yeah. We post a every game, yeah. Get your Kodak. Once he gets you under the basket, you better just pray. Hit you with the jab step, knock down, lock from Ben. Get out the way, and one, let the fans know it. Yeah, homie, let the fans know it. Watch the trailer, the three is going in your eye. If you mess, you better get back. Cause if them bees, there won't be a putback. Keep all that trash out of the paint. Cause them bees will put it back in your face. He's a cold blooded killer, and he take no prisoners. Yeah, dump off from TJ. Call it the feed to him, going on everybody this is the feed to Embiid I am your host Austin Krell along with my amazing co-host the one and only Brock Landis the man who rips t-shirts and snorts uh, pre-workout for a living Brock how are you my friend I'm, I'm doing well I thought that was a pretty a generous indictment of me uh, a good representation I'm doing well nonetheless uh, spring weather's fast approaching and this is unrelated, but I just started Breaking Bad. Long overdue. I just started that series on Netflix. So I, I think I'm about to start season three. And uh, that's occupying all my time right now. You know, I watched the first episode a long time ago, and I was like, eh, not really feeling it. And I, and I haven't quite gotten back to it. But, of course, I'm the odd man out because everyone in the world loves Breaking Bad. But Well, I think it's because the first two seasons are slow. Uh, from what I've been told, you kind of have to establish all of the relationships and all of the character traits and everything of that sort. And then season three is when the action picks up. But this is what I have to do when there's no basketball on. There's there's just too much time on my hands, so I have to binge watch stuff. Oh, dude, I miss it so much. I miss basketball. I need it back. Um, so I, I figured we would dive in to the Sixers' upcoming schedule. We just open it up with that. Um, let's start out with, 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 with the cup with the games upcoming this week. They have, uh, Brooklyn and Philly on Thursday, and then they have Milwaukee in their building on Saturday. Um, obviously, uh, you know, not the easiest stretch to begin, uh, the last third of the season. Um, Brooklyn shouldn't be too tough. Milwaukee will be Milwaukee, of course, but let's go down the list. I mean, they have Atlanta. They have Cleveland, New York, Sacramento, Golden State, Detroit. Uh, there's there's a bunch that that's just a, a, just to name a few. They have the easiest strength of schedule the last 27 games of the season of any team in the NBA. And you know I I gotta think with a you know just just coming back from a break and really resetting and getting some some needed uh, I guess TLC that they're due to just really heat up and get going here. Um, what would you think of that last 27 games of the season? Uh, I co-sign what you said. Now, according to ESPN Relative Power Index, they had the third toughest schedule in the NBA up until this point. For the latter half of the season, they're among the top two easiest schedules in the NBA. 
Uh, 13 games on the road, 13 at home. A couple of them are on national TV. Now, I foresee Philadelphia going 10-3 and three at home. I have their three losses being one against Milwaukee, one against Portland, and one against Indiana. On the road, last episode, I believe I said 6-7. and seven. Well, after the All-Star break and all of the fool's goal that I've been disillusioned by, I now have Philadelphia at 8-5 and five on the road of their final 13. And we can get into their road matchups. And I also wanted to talk about some of the other teams in the Eastern Conference and talking about how that seeding will play out. But Philadelphia opens with, of course, a few tough games in Milwaukee. But I think they can definitely gain some traction and gain in the Eastern Conference because I looked at who Boston opens with. And they play Minnesota, their first game back. But then they have a three-game road stand where they play the Lakers, the Trailblazers, and the Jazz. And that's an area where Philadelphia can gain a lot of ground in the Eastern Conference if they win, of course, the first couple of games in their first week back. Right. I, I, I agree with you. So did you, so you said that they you think they go 10-3 at home the remainder of the season? Yeah, 10-3 at home. Really? So that would be a step back from what they've done. Well, I, I, I mean, I don't think they're going to go undefeated at home. But they do play a lot of sub-500 teams. So the three losses that I pegged them with were games that I think they could potentially lose. So if you beat Milwaukee on the road, let's say, on ABC, uh, what are the chances you think Philadelphia has Milwaukee's name, or number rather, on the road and then at home again in the two times they faced them for the latter half? I think it's tough to beat a team twice. Uh, so I, I really think they're going to lose one of those two to Milwaukee. So I pegged them with one loss there. The Portland game, I think, comes before a game against the Rockets, where Philadelphia hosts both Portland and the Rockets. And I think Philadelphia beats the Rockets. And just because of that, I pegged them with a loss against Portland because that's the game prior. And Indiana is another game where I think if, if they utilize the pick and roll correctly and they, they throw a lot of guard firepower at Philadelphia, that's one where the Sixers can lose. But I think 10-3 and three at home is, is what I'm going to go with right now. Interesting. See, I would, I would definitely think, think like, okay, they're, they're, they're gonna lose to Milwaukee and Milwaukee because there's just no reason to believe that they can keep up with it. With, I mean, we're asking them to just win games on the road and against anyone, let alone take down the powerhouse that is the Milwaukee Bucks on the road. Um, I, I kind of think that they're gonna finish out at home. I mean, I, I said they would go thirty-eight and three, and people laughed. Um, I mean, you could probably throw in a, a loss there just for, you know, uh, for you know standard error purposes. But I, 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 I don't see a, a loss at home. Wow, well, so, so undefeated for for the final thirteen. Well, why? I mean, did you ever think that they'd be twenty five and two at home? Uh, absolutely not. Like right. you said, a lot of people laughed at that opinion of yours, and I probably would have too. Right. So I, 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 that's just what I'm thinking. Like, th- like, there's no rhyme or reason to it. It's just that they've been so dominant and unbelievable at home at, and that they've shocked so many people. Why wouldn't I believe that they can go and they can win 13? At, uh, or they, they can go home and they can, they can go in, uh, what is it, 14 left at home because um, they've won 25-27 at home. So I, on the road, I'm thinking, you know, you're probably going to lose to Milwaukee. You'll lose to the Clippers, lose to the Lakers, both teams that in L.A. are are – in their own building and they're on their own, uh, you know, time and out West and they both lost to you in your building. So I'm thinking, but I'm thinking that, you know, you have opportunities against the Cavs, against the, the, the Kings, against the Warriors, against the, the Hornets, the Timberwolves, 
those kind of teams are teams that you can that you, you that, that 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 you can you you can beat um when when you're in their building because you know just by sheer talent differential so i'm kind of thinking that you know in that 27 games i know i said i wanted to get records and um and how uh, how far up or down they move i'm going to say that they i'm going to say they finish um at at, at home I'm gonna go with 38 and three, as my prediction said, and I, I, I'm thinking on the road they finish. Um, hmm. I'm gonna go 18 23, as I said. So that's what that's that's eight, over 18, over 500. I think it's 18 and 38. That's that's 56 and 26. That's five losses yeah. the rest of the way. I I think you can do that. I think you can definitely do that. I mean, I'm they have the. That's twenty two and five over the last twenty seven, and it's and they have the, yeah, and they have the strength of schedule to support that that finding. Um, now is the time. Now is the time that you you know you 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 you've been sort of uh, you know messing around all season long, and now is the time to really get to where you need to be as a team, where they can get as a team. Um, so I guess that th- that that makes me think that they get up to. I would guess they get to the three seed. Um, where, where, where do you where do you stand in terms of record and, and moving up or down? I think that it's going to be tough for Philadelphia to overtake that three seed. I think they definitely end up with a four. Okay. Um, in saying that, I look towards some of the other schedules, uh, namely the Raptors, Celtics, and Heat, uh, three teams ahead of Philadelphia because they're too far behind Milwaukee at this point. So for the Raptors, the stretch of games I'm looking at is 318, where the Raptors play at, Wells Fargo against the Sixers. Need that one. And then 320, the Raptors play the Celtics. 322, they play Denver. And 324, there's another game there. So during that 318 to 324 span for the Raptors, the Sixers play the Hornets, the Hawks, and the Timberwolves, whereas the Raptors are playing four teams above 500. So Philadelphia needs, needs, needs to take at least two of those three games. I'd say three of three just because you're playing the Hornets, Hawks, and Timberwolves. But, of course, you never know with the Sixers. And, again, for Toronto, 4-1, they play at the Bucks. 4-3, they play the Bucks. They host them at home. And then 4-5, they travel to Houston and play the Rockets on the road. Right. Now, Philadelphia, from that 4-1 to 4-5 span, plays the Wizards of Magic. Right. So there's an opportunity there for Philadelphia to gain on the Raptors. With the Celtics, I, I talked about opening, but the Celtics do have a pretty tough stretch of games. I'm looking at 3-6, they play the Jazz. 3-8, they play the Thunder. 3-10, they're at Indiana. And 3-12, they're at Milwaukee. And the Sixers during that span only have two games. It's the Warriors and the Pistons. So if Philadelphia wants to gain on Boston, which I think is a very doable thing, not only do they need to impress in their first week back, that is Philadelphia, because... Boston opens up with that three-game road stand. Uh, But Philadelphia really, really, really needs to take a couple wins away from that West Coast road trip where they're going to be playing uh, the the Golden State Warriors. They're going to play Sacramento, the Clippers, the Lakers. I think you need to win at least three games there to gain a significant amount on Boston. And then Boston 4-5 and 4-8 plays the Bucs and Pacers. Now, for Miami, I think they're going to be able to maintain a top three seed. And I say that, unfortunately, because they don't really have a stretch of games where it's back-to-back or they're playing consecutive tough opponents. It's really just spread out. So 228, they play Dallas, and 229 
It's a back-to-back where they play the Nets the night after. Other than that, there's really not too many notable games. They play Boston twice and Milwaukee twice, but they play a lot of sub-500 teams. And Austin, I think you'll attest to the fact that Miami is probably a regular season team. So I think they'll be able they can they can very easily maintain the top three seed. And just because of that, I don't think Philadelphia is going to crack that first three. But if Philadelphia does take at least three or four on that West Coast road trip and they open out hot, uh, you never know. They can really gain on Boston. Yeah, I I tend to think that – I mean, I, I think that the strength of schedule for, for the Miami Heat um, in the early part of the year has been, like, very favorable for them. I mean – you look at their losses and they've lost to Philly in Philly. Um, they've lost to the Lakers in Miami. They've lost to the Clippers in Miami. So, you know, they, 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 they've really, they, they've done a good job of beating up on teams that they're supposed to beat. But then when the, when the tier one teams flex on them, they show that like, they just can't keep up with the firepower. They just can't do it. Um, so I, I and, and, and of late, the Heat lost like four games and, and or like three or four or four or five before the All Star break. So they they they've shown some vulnerability, and um, you know, uh, eventually, I I feel like Tyler here has been kind of figured out a little bit. He's been getting less playing time, um, and I think you know they're a, they're a good team. I just don't buy them um, going forward. I, I I you know it's nothing personal with them. I, I separate the fans from the team and the, the team I just don't buy. Um, and so I, I tend to think that the Sixers can get past the heat. Um, and, you know, I think if they won a couple more road games already, they, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Um, but again, reality, here we are. As for Boston, all you have to do is just tie Boston in terms of the standings and you win the tiebreaker. So you don't have to actually surpass them. You just have to get there and be right. equal with them in, in, ter- in terms of in terms of the record. Um, so I, I you said you say the four. I think they can get to the three. I think the three is very doable. I think the two is asking too much. I think you're asking way too much with with with, with, with the two seed. Um, you might be now is that, that is that Toronto? Do, do you yes. believe Toronto? Okay, okay. Do I believe in Toronto as a as a as a as a team that the Sixers would would, would lose to? I don't know yet. Um, I mean, Pascal Siakam has been phenomenal. He's been, you know, he's been, an, he's an all-star starter, well, well-deserving. I don't know that I buy the ability of, of Marcus Gasol to be sustainable for, for a, a seven game series. I mean, he's been, he, again, like I said, on the other, on the, um, on the party on brawl the other night, he's been short with his shot a lot this season. And I think, you know, Kyle Lowry's very hit or miss. And I, I, I just think that, um, the, the Sixers wouldn't allow themselves to lose a seven-game series to the Raptors. I just don't see that happening. Um, so I, I think the main things you have to contend with are really yourselves. I mean, you have to not beat yourselves in this last third of the season. You have to win the games you're supposed to win and then, you know, continue to do what you've been doing at home. And I think with Joel Embiid sort of rediscovering his personality and and and, and uh, maybe having a lineup that fits better. Maybe they're on. Maybe they're en route to reaching that potential. But I think I think three and four. You know, we're 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 pretty much on the same page. I think I'm a little more skeptical of the other teams than you are. But that's you know that that's perfectly okay. That's why we have the conversation. Um, for the sake of time, let's move on to the um, to the other to the one prompt that I thought was really interesting. Is it more likely that Brett Brown misuses Alec Burks? 
or uses him perfectly. Um, with this, I mean, like, Burks has been for Golden State, or he was for Golden State, a really, really nice find on, on a cheap contract. He was their go-to shot creator, was their was pretty much their leading scorer outside of D'Angelo Russell. And the Sixers really got him for for for, for pennies on the dollar, if you ask me. And yet in the first couple games, even though he's been like, he'd be a really good piece, he's in theory a very good piece for them, Brett Brown's used him sparingly. So what do you think? Do you, you think it's more likely that Brett Brown just completely misuses Alec Burke and he goes on and he sits on the bench for, 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 for game stretches? Or does he get used really well and just has to defer a lot to the other stars? I think offensively, he's the most polished player on Philadelphia's bench. Uh, so he'd be invaluable as a second unit player. Now, Brett Brown, I think, is going to have a feeling process with both Robinson and Burks, and I think it's going to take about two and a half weeks, three weeks, to fully integrate the both of them. Uh, Historically, I think Brett Brown has struggled with using his second units and and creating rotations that are both sustainable with success and and also make sense in terms of the combination of players on the floor. Uh, But Alec Burks can be used in a multitude of ways. He was top 10 among guards in post-up points. He comes off screens very nicely. He hits spots confidently. He can take players off the dribble. He cuts off ball. He's good in transition. So I think given how versatile Alec Burks is, and I've said this countless times, he diversifies their half-court offense. Right. And I think at times when Philadelphia really struggles and, and goes stagnant offensively, Alec Burks is a remedy for that problem because of how good he can be off the dribble or taking his defender down low and kicking, things of that sort. So – I think when you have a player as versatile as Alec Burks is, it's almost impossible to bury him. And given how scarce or scarce rather offense is on Philadelphia's bench, I think Brett Brown has no choice but to play him. Now the question becomes is he correctly. Exactly. So in in a fourth quarter scenario with under five minutes to play, the question is no longer should Alec Burks be in the game or, or, or this and that. It's it's really who is the biggest defensive liability between a combination of players. Is it Matisse Thybul? Is he too much of an offensive liability? Is it Glenn Robinson? Is he too much of a defensive liability? Can Alec Burks close a game out with four other players on the floor? Will their defense suffer too much if Alec Burks is in for Al Horford? I mean, these questions will come up and Brett Brown will have to answer them. And, and that's only something time will tell. But I'm really curious as to whose minutes Alec Burks is going to eat into. I think he'll he'll probably absorb a lot of the backup point guard minutes but the problem is Ben Simmons plays 38 minutes a game, 39, 40 minutes a game. Uh, so I, I know Alec Burks is probably the second best ball handler on this team. Uh, I'd argue he's a better ball handler than Josh Richardson. Interesting. But my question is, whose minutes does he eat into, and and how many minutes a game would that what, what would that look like for Alec Burks? Interesting. You 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 make a really really good point there. Um, I it's ironic that like the person who comes up at the topic is the one who's stumped by it. Um I tend to think that for whatever reason I just think Brett Brown's gonna misuse him. I, I, I do. Yeah. Um now now think, when you say misuse, do you just mean bury him or, or use him offensively incorrectly? Bury him. I think he'll use them and use him in the right ways. I just think that he's not gonna use him enough. And Burks is the kind of guy who you give six minutes or so in a row off the bench and let him feast and let him just get in transition, get downhill, and and, and score the ball. 
uh, you that's the kind of guy he is. And I don't think that Brett Brown trusts him to not take bad shots or, or shots that are questionable, even though like the entire team takes questionable shots. And so I think like, as a result, you'll see him play two, three, four minutes and then someone else subs in. And then you're like, well, wait, why aren't you leaving him in there? Why aren't you giving him a chance to, to, to open this offense up at the second unit? And I think if they, if they get bounced early and it's like a close seven game series where the average margin of victory is like five points or four points, that might be a point where you go back to it and you're like, Brett Brown completely misused Alec Burks. And as a result, it's a big question mark as to as, as to how far they could have gotten. I'm not saying that, that I'm not saying that, that that Alec Burks is is the missing piece for this team that they're a championship contender now with him. I'm saying that that uh, it, it that with with the margin of victory that this team has of late, um, you you need to execute well at, at all facets on the court and off the court, and that 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 means the players playing well and then the coach pulling all the right strings. And I think that giving Burks too few minutes because you're because 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 he make my jack a little bit I think that's um that, that that's pulling the wrong strings there um now I think he'll probably ultimately use him in the right way like in terms of pick and roll and cr- shot creation off the dribble I think he will do that because I think like that's why you got the guy here and if you don't do that and and then you know you never really get the most out of him you're, you're that, that's another thing you have to take to the job meeting at the end of the season like okay not only did you not like play him enough but you also didn't know how to play him the right way which is a bigger indictment on Brett Brown than anything um and so I think he'll ultimately use him the right way when he plays him I just don't have confidence that Brett Brown's going to play him enough in fact I think that that Glenn Robinson who isn't as good as an offensive player um is is, is going to get like a ton of minutes and like we're, there'll be times where we're, where we're like why the fuck is this guy playing? Yeah, so, I, I, I could, I could definitely, I, I can see that, and I think schematically, Glenn Robinson makes more sense to pair with Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid, especially in transition. If you have Joel Embiid in the post in a half court offense, and Glenn Robinson is committed to off ball movement, his feel for space on the floor and and his feel for cutting, that's that's unrivaled. If you compare that with Joel Embiid, and like I said last podcast in transition. Marrying Ben Simmons in transition with a guy like Glenn Robinson is also beneficial. I'm I, I, I'm just very intrigued by the versatility of Alec Burks because if he's in the game with, let's say, Tobias Harris, Ben Simmons, and Joel Embiid, you can plug and play whoever else that other option is. He'll be used primarily as a floor spacer, and he shot over 37% from deep in a handful of seasons throughout his career. So I think primarily as a floor spacer, that's fine. Now, in the second unit is when he'd really thrive, and that's because of a shot creation. But I, I can almost agree with what you're saying, just not wholeheartedly, because historically it feels like Brett Brown has has a lot of problems with shot creators that, that can create instant individual offense, guys that have the basketball and they kind of predetermine, I'm shooting this shot, or I'm going to my spot and I'm taking it right here, or I'm going to back this guy down in the post and not kick it, things of that sort. And I think that's what Alex, Alex, Alex Burks' game is predicated upon. It's it's instant individual offense and shot creating. So I, I'm curious to see how he's going to be used in different ways because, like I said, you can use him in a multitude of ways. Sometimes he'll be used primarily as a floor spacer. Other times he'll be handling the basketball. Sometimes he's going to get screen set and shoot his shot. But I, I really think it would be criminal for Brett Brown to bury him on the bench and Austin if that is true, I, I think it's going to be really unfortunate and detrimental for the team as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we've 
you know, we've we've heard off the record what we've heard off the record about Alec Burks and 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 you know going elsewhere. Um, and I, I think he, I understand why he's playing for you know he's playing for a contract. He is, and I get that. And you got to get your bread. Um, but at the same time, you have to ask yourself like, okay, I have a chance to win a championship and play a role on that championship team. Is is, is the amount of money that I'm going to get on the open market that substantially different than what I would get in the role that I have if I play it well here? Not not only I'm- that, I, I can't remember if it was you or somebody else in our 76ers, the Pain and Langers group chat that raised a really good point. If you play exceptionally well in the playoffs on a national stage for a seven-game series, that's where you earn the most of your money. Not if you play on a 20-win regular season team and and you excel because the team is incredibly depleted. You earn your money in the playoffs. And and the first name that comes to mind is Bismack Biombo. And Charlotte threw a huge contract at him because he was rebounding and defending like a maniac with Toronto. And he earned himself a really lucrative contract. And that's where a lot of contracts and money is made. Even Corey Joseph made his money because of the, of his play in the playoffs. So I, I think for Alec Burks, whatever is is hurt off the record, that's whatever. But if Alec Burks can really buy into the Sixers program, and likewise for the coaching staff where they can buy into Alec Burks and, and they can put their faith in him on the floor, I think that's where he can earn his money because – if he plays well where the Sixers need him to in the playoffs, that's how he's going to make more money. If 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 I'm correct, he signed in Golden State for the veteran minimum. So whatever he makes next season is, is presumably going to be more than for what he signed this year. Yeah, and I think, honestly, he's already solidified that he'll probably earn more than that anyway. But, I mean, you make a great point. Like The playoffs are where he's going to really have a chance to 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 – to set himself up for a nice lucrative contract in the future. I mean, if you want an example of that, that, that's like pretty pertinent in my mind, look at Dante DiVincenzo for Villanova in the title game a couple of years ago. I mean, he was not an NBA player coming into that game and he had 31 points off the bench and then he got picked 16th overall. I wouldn't have picked him 16th. I would, I, I would, he would have been a mid, he would have been a late second, a late first rounder for me. And then when they asked LeBron about it in practice the next day, he even said like, I know how this league goes and that kid has made himself a ton of money. By, with that performance. I mean, you, you make the most money on, on, at a national stage by how you perform in the playoffs. That's absolutely true. Um, now let's, 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 let's take a, a, another spin over to a different side of the, of the team here. Um, I, I got to wonder. So we, we, we saw a really, really, really fascinating sort of contrast with the Sixers team on, 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 I think last Tuesday when they played the Clippers Clippers obviously are very, very, very uh, strong team. Who's you know the record's probably a, a bigger reflection on them trying to load manage for the playoffs than anything else. And you know they're 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 better than the record says they are. I think. Um, and the Sixers controlled that game really for the, for the, in in entirety, um, and uh, they end up winning by seven. And it was in large part because of a reinvigorated offense because Al Horford came off the bench. So. It's something that I know that we've asked for for a while and we've been wondering about for a while, and it's the writing's been on the wall with Al, how Al has performed. But is Al Horford coming off the bench a permanent solution in your mind, or is that more like a temporary fix until they can sort of figure out a new plan or, or find a groove elsewhere? This is most definitely permanent. 
And this is something like you just alluded to that people have observed and been asking for for weeks on end. And Brett Brown finally made the decision, and I'm not going to include statistics here because a one-game sample size is far too little. But if you used your eyes to watch and observe this basketball game against the Clippers, their offense just seems so much more cohesive. It, it seemed like it moved more fluently. There is more space in the floor. Tobias Harris at his natural position was able to attack opposing four defenders and take them off the dribble. And in part, he's not having to defend maybe a, sw- a smaller or a quicker small forward. He gets to defend his natural position. The floor was much more spaced out. Joel Embiid had more room to operate. Ben Simmons took a season-high field goal attempts. He was shooting early. He was attacking. I believe he drove 21 times in his season, and his season average is right above 15, and his career average is right about 12. So it just seemed like the offense was moving far more fluently. And even for Al Horford, he had a nice game off the bench. And Al Horford is a guy that isn't going to give you huge contributions, but his small contributions are valuable. Now, when he's on the floor and he's making small contributions, but he's hurting the offense as a starter and he's throwing the two and Simmons and Embiid off of uh, off of their rhythm, it's almost like his contributions mean nothing. So you'd rather the the, the Sixers offense not be congested and Al Horford only give you 10-6 and 2 on 45% shooting and contribute in small bursts than have him pour in 22 points in 30 minutes played while clogging up the paint and making things more difficult for the Sixers team to operate. So I think this is a permanent fix, and if the coaching staff and Brett Brown alike were watching the Clippers game, which of course they were because they were sitting courtside, they got a front row seat, uh, this this move needs to be etched in stone. This This needs to continue throughout the rest of the season. I actually disagree with you. I, I no, and I'm let me let me explain here before people gasp. Um, I think it's the it is the correct solution, the permanent the correct permanent solution for basketball reasons. It makes all the sense in the world for basketball reasons. I don't I I don't think we've seen the last of an Embiid Horford starting lineup, and, I, and here's why. Um, I think that they have visions of them closing games in the playoffs with that lineup and in order to make in order to get that that to a level where it's like it's not hideous and they can actually figure it out even though they haven't shown any ability to to this point um they're gonna have to sacrifice some regular season games to, to, to figure out a mutual point where that can work and where they can close the games in the playoffs with both of them on the floor together because that's why that's why they spent the money on Horford and speaking of money there's no way that uh, that 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 in my mind that a guy like Joshua Harris and and a front office that was so sure of itself this past summer with what they did um that they're just going to like bite the bullet and say yeah we fucked up like the money was it, we're overpaying for a guy who's our sixth man forever like no they're going to wait and see if they can unravel some of this disaster that has been the first i guess like you know on and off the first two thirds of the year and then they're going to try to throw it back in there and see if they can find a clicking point, I think. Um, but in ter- like in ter- as someone who's like an objective observer and someone who has no rooting interest in, in, in out starting or coming off the bench, it makes all the sense in the world that you would bring out the bench for the rest of the season and beyond. I think, it, I, I think this would be a very good way to sort of slowly move him into that inevitable role that he'll be 
at age 37 when he's playing out the, the last, you know, the latter portion of his contract because he's not going to be the starting center or the, or the starting power forward. He's going to get too slow. He's going to have to be a back to his basket, like spot up mid range shooting center. And the only way that's going to work is if he's coming off the bench. So I think it, I think practically it won't happen on like a permanent basis. You'll still see moments where they, where, where they start them together and where they play them together. Cause they have to, in terms of, figuring it out in the playoffs and for the sake of the money and the ego, but it doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. I, I hear you there. And and of all starting five lineups in the NBA to play at least 200 minutes, the Sixers true starting five lineup from opening night has the second best defensive rating in the NBA. So of course this works defensively when the Sixers want to play, uh, but offensively, it's just a very clunky fit. It doesn't really make sense. And most of the looks that were generated for Al Horford against the Clippers were looks for a center. Shots around the basket, an occasional three-point shot, and most of his shots were 15 feet in. But when he's on the floor with Simmons and Embiid, I, I use the word congested. And I alluded to this last podcast too. It's like, if Simmons isn't the primary ball handler, if, if in the half-court offense he's playing off-ball, he's either at the elbow or on the low block. Al Horford has made a name for himself at the elbow with pick-and-pops. So Al Horford can't be on the elbow if Ben Simmons is in the game, on most possessions. Joel Embiid, if he's not 20 feet, 24 feet extended, he's also in the paint at the high post or the low post. So Al Horford can't be there either. Tobias Harris at, at 6'8", playing the small forward, leads to even more congestion. And then your catch-and-shoot options are Al Horford and a, a combination of maybe Shake Milton or Matisse Thybul or Furkan Korkmaz. So teams are just going to allow the Sixers to shoot if Al Horford is on the floor with Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons. I, I think it's a very clunky fit, and, and unfortunately, in a vacuum, I think everybody would agree that Al Horford shouldn't be starting alongside Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons. But this is the world of the NBA, which is a business. So I think, Austin, you hit the nail on the head there. It's not only an ego blow for Al Horford to be relegated to a bench role, but for the guys that thought they were geniuses and bucking a trend by signing him and just going big and trying to outsize everybody. Right. And... um Speaking of congestion, thank you to our sponsor, Flonase. No, I'm, uh, I'm just kidding. But uh, that would be pretty cool if we did have them as a sponsor. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, we're on the same page there with, 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 with the Horford situation. Um, now, let's let's take it to, a, a complete, I guess, to a, a perpendicular angle here and go to Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid, the narrative that's formed. Obviously, with it, whether it being radio or or, you know, uh, supposed sources of Chris Broussard or clicks on 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 Twitter, um, it, it sort of begun to smoke a little bit that maybe Embiid and Simmons don't work together in terms of the fit, or in terms of you know their personalities and clashing, and there's jealousy, this or that. Um, I think that they did a good job of, if if it is real, and I'm sure to some extent they probably aren't the best of friends, and they probably don't. Like they probably wouldn't be the like they probably wouldn't be each other's first choice if they could say like this is the team I want to build, but I think that you know they they did a good job of sort of saying like hey 
like this is just a national media thing that they're trying to drive something between here just to create a discussion and and, and get clicks. Um, we're all good here is kind of what I got out of the weekend. Um, and honestly, even if, even if there is some kind of, um, I guess that there is some kind of lack of fit there on the court, however big or small it might be, or even if they aren't the best of friends, um, then, you know, it's okay. You don't have to be your best friend. You don't have to be best friends with your coworkers. I, I have a ton of coworkers and I'm not best friends with all of them. Um, you know, there, there are people previously at the painted lines who, who, who I didn't have a good relationship with, let alone friendly with. So, you know, you don't have to, to, to be best of friends. You just have to coexist in the same, in the same work environment. And the, the proof is in the pudding that they, 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 they've won 50 plus games in back-to-back years probably headed to another 50 plus win season for the third straight year. And even at times when it's clunky and the fit doesn't make a ton of sense, there are a lot of times when they look unbeatable together on the floor at the same time. Yeah, that's, that's brilliantly said. Now I'll categorize media into two different sections, the players of yesteryear and the actual media. Now, Austin, I believe these words came out of your mouth before. Correct me if I'm wrong. They probably have. No publicity is bad publicity. That sounds like something I'd say, just to defend a bad take. Exactly. Right? So for the media section, guys like Broussard and and Colin Coward and and people of that sort, they want to generate discussions and, and, and generate dialogue. Now, I think that Philadelphia 76ers Twitter and their fan base is one of the more active fan bases among the NBA association. Uh, I think they're very engaged. So for a radio host or a broadcaster or someone on TV, the goal is not to say what's correct, right? There's not a moral dilemma here. Do I say what's correct or what's incorrect? The goal is to generate attention, to generate clicks, to generate viewers. So guys are going to get on national TV or on national radio stations and say whatever they can to stir the pot because they understand there's people like me and you or people on Twitter they're going to have these dialogues and offend the players and keep clicking and keep buying and, and keep subscribing and doing that. So, so that just heightens their status. And meanwhile, they can degrade the duo of Ben Simmons or they can degrade the city of Philadelphia. And it doesn't matter because they're always going to get engagement. Now, that's one side of the coin. The other is the players of yesteryear. And, and this seems a little more real to me. And I'll equate this to an analogy, right? So... When you're a child and you do something stupid. Oh, uh, breaking news, breaking news. What's that? After a brief and tumultuous tenure, John Beeline is leaving as Cleveland's coach. Associate head coach J.B. Bickerstaff will be elevated to head coach. Beeline's expected to say goodbye to staff and players on Wednesday upon team's return from All-Star break. Well, they, they got a, problems in Cleveland. What a dramatic and just – rapid downfall that was the John Beeline tenure in mm-hmm. Cleveland. Absolutely. But anyway, anyway, back to uh to uh more important information. Um so you were saying with the other side of the coin that the, the yes. players of the so, year. So when when your dad or your mom tells you in response to a mistake you've made, I, I I've done this before. I'm older than you. I've experienced what you you should listen to me. And you're like, what are you talking about? You don't know anything about it. You don't want to listen to them. 
And, and that's what I kind of equate to what's happening with the players of yesteryear and their criticism or bullying of Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons. It's almost like these guys are saying, I know the remedy for success, uh, or, or the recipe rather. I know what you should be doing. Here's what you should be doing. If you don't want to listen to me, tough. And it, it's creating this weird discussion because it's like if Joel Embiid does things correctly, they can say, hey, I told you so. I've been urging you to do this. I told you so. And if Joel Embiid does things incorrectly, then they can get on their high horse and say, hey, well, I told you so. Here's what he should be doing. So it's almost like these players are never wrong. Uh, all of the advice they're dishing, it's it's always the right advice. Here's what you should be doing. And I think there's there's a clash here because it's kind of like Charles Barkley, for instance, is the parent saying to Joel Embiid, you need to get in the post. You need to stop shooting. You're too lazy. You're too fat. You need to do, you need better conditioning. Things of that sort. And Joel Embiid is saying, as kindly as he possibly can, I appreciate all of the advice, but here's how I'm going to do it. Or the game was different when you played. Here's how I have to evolve with the game. And it's creating this constant clash. And I remember when Charles Barkley used to do it with DeMarcus Cousins. And, and always calling him a cancer, and he's too lazy. He doesn't run. He's fat, and he's slow. so. The problem is, the players of yesteryear are telling these players what they should do based upon what worked for them, and the players are saying in response to that, "Well, I'm not going to do that because the game's different. So here's what I'm going to do." So now all of these players from yesteryear are, are, are getting hurt when the players are saying that, and it's like their advice is always right. So if the player does something wrong. I told you here's what you should be doing if they do something right. Well, I deserve credit. It's like if Joel Embiid has a good game, it's because Shaq and Charles bullied him prior in the pregame. I think it's nonsense. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you. I think, you know, my take about the whole, like, players of yesteryear, I personally want nobody who's ever – if you haven't won a championship – in your career, what makes you think that you have the credentials to tell somebody who is trying to win one how to win one? Like, I understand, like, Shaq or that Charles, you know, wants to do what's, you know, what wants to help them be the best that they can be. What has Charles Barkley ever won? He's never won a championship. What does he, how does he know what it takes to win one when he's never experienced winning one? I mean, you're right. I mean, and it's, 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 a, it's like a cold sort of like, harsh douchey way of saying it but at the same time it's like the fact of the matter is if you haven't won one how are you going to sit there and tell people how to win one when you haven't done it yourself how do you know Shaq I have no problem with it he's won MVPs he's been he's won five championships he's done it with 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 with, 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 with while you know simultaneously coexisting with guys who who he didn't necessarily love to play with at the time he's done it in in different eras of basketball He's been the, the last piece of the puzzle. He's been the main piece of the puzzle. He knows how to win championships. Um, Hakeem knows how to win championships. I don't understand why Charles Barkley is like this voice of reason who knows how to win championships. I don't I I, 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 I I damn sure, I damn sure do not want Kendrick Perkins talking about anybody because Kendrick Perkins has never been in more than a more, more than a, a fifteen minutes a game guy who you started because you wanted to bring your better center off the bench to provide a sense spark off the bench. There's no way Kendrick Perkins should be talking about anybody but his own self. There's no way Kendrick Perkins should be on TV 
I mean, it's it's preposterous. He, he I'm not even sure that he knows basketball. Right, and, and he's the other side of that coin, unfortunately. So he's a combination of both a player from yesteryear and media. So now he's just saying outlandish things because he knows people are going to interact, people are going to be engaged. Yeah. But Austin, the the point that you initially made is is a brilliant point. Whatever happens off of the court is none of our business, and frankly, none of that matters. If Ben Simmons never high fived or said a word to Joel Embiid off of the court, that really doesn't matter. At the end of the day. The finished product is on the court. If the two of them can coexist, then that's all that matters. And they have the merit to show for it. Like you said, two consecutive 50-win seasons, they single-handedly turned this franchise around. And they're both under the age of 25. A lot of people, they, they, they scrutinize and criticize Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons, and they're way too nearsighted. It, it took Jordan. It took LeBron. It, it, it took Durant. It, it took all these players – a handful of years to even sniff a championship title win. And yet people anticipate this happening for Ben Simmons before he turns 24 years old. It's mind boggling. And and I get people want to like put MB on this, like, I guess, um, I, I guess micro level scale because you don't know, like, like you don't know like how long of a timeline his career has. You also are going off of like injuries that were from like five or six years ago with Embiid. Like, 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 like his back really hasn't been a, a, a persistent issue since he came out of Kansas. His feet, God forbid, knock on wood, like to the end of like, till my knuckles are like, are like going through the skin. Like his feet haven't been an issue. The only thing he's had is some, is some occasional knee swelling because he's been hurt. And again, God forbid, like knock on wood until the end of time. But you're, it's, it's all on previous medical history. The guy is, the guy has had the last three seasons. He's had one fluke facial injury and one fluke finger injury, and the, that's the only thing that has really kept him out for an extended period of time. Are those, are the, are those two issues? You're, you're so, right. So, so I, I, you know, I get that people are like, "Well, we don't know how long Embiid has left." We're also going off of things that are not up to date in terms of medical history. Yeah. So and go, go ahead. Go ahead. And, and and I'll say this about Fox Sports and Chris Broussard and 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 uh, and that that other guy Rick. Uh, Rick Buecher. Fox Sports is the little brother that's trying to become ESPN. It's, it, it overpaid all of the yes, all of the ex ESPN employees to come talk on their shows because they wanted that publicity. They wanted to have those names under their belt. Stephen A. Smith isn't going over there. You're not gonna. You don't have Mike Greenberg going over there. You don't have Dan Lebitard going over there. All the best personalities are on the sports network. Sports network that, by the way is still failing in ESPN. So you have guys like um, uh, um, Jason Whitlock, guys like Antoine Walker, guys like um, uh, Chris, you know, I said, I, probably, I think I said Chris Bruce already, but like Colin Cowherd, guys who only watch like two or three teams around the NBA and then act like they know, like they know the entire NBA. Chris Broussard, I don't buy for a second that he has actual NBA sources. And if he did, if he, and if he did it, if he did it one time, then they are vastly out of touch. And if, if people say, like, say like, who are you to question Chris Broussard's sources? I'm the guy who saw the tweets from Kevin Durant, who said that like, 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 bro, you'll talk to anybody. You're a, you're a bullshitter. It's what, right. it's what, it's what your act is. So Chris Broussard said some ludicrous shit on national TV. Everyone eats it up because they want to drive the narrative. And then, only thing that Embiid and Simmons have done since then is prove that that, that 
not only is there no issue, but it's actually quite the opposite, that things are, are, are fine. And it isn't even like they're just playing the part of like trying to soothe the media. It's that like they're saying things and going the extra mile that you wouldn't say if things weren't just okay. Exactly. Exactly. So, so that that that, that I, I I just preposterous and quite frankly, it's embarrassing to people who are trying who who are you know young to the media game, people who don't have the clout or or, or the following that 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 these guys have because they're doing it for the sake of of of, of the clicks of the views because they know they're going to get it. They don't actually have any proof it doesn't work. They don't they, they don't even acknowledge the proof that exists that it does work. Um, so you know that narrative is in my opinion is a is a bunch of shit. Um. Let's 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 take it over to to to. You said players of yesteryear. Let's take it over to ghosts of Christmas past. Um, so so I I want to talk about this because it's something that's been on my mind for months and I don't think is getting ha, has really received the much attention as it, as it should have. I understand that Jimmy Butler has been a, a, a tremendous tremendous piece to the Miami Heat and he's he's the driver of their success this year, averaging t- nearly twenty one points a game, almost seven boards. And six assists, an all star, rightfully so this year. Yada yada yada. You, if you really do like an an, an extra ounce of research on him, and like just like play with a couple of filters in the in the NBA.com stats menu, you would have a very hard time convincing me that that the Sixers team would be so much better off with him than they are with Tobias Harris. This is Jimmy Butler's three point percentage for the year. Three point percentage, not two point. Three point. Twenty-four point eight percent from downtown. Eighteen point two percent frequency from beyond the arc. He's taking less than twenty percent of his shots from beyond the arc. He's making less he, he's making like two standard deviations less than the average three point percentage. Let's take it a step further. Let's go to catch and shoot threes. Twenty-seven point nine percent. How about, about pull-ups? 11% frequency. Let's try 21.7% connection. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Austin, listen, you're making me look bad. You're pulling all these numbers out of your hat. You're making me look bad. Let, 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 let's, try, let's try jump shots, shall we? How about, how about, uh, how about pull-up jump shots? Anything above, um, uh, uh, above two dribbles, he's shooting under 45% from the field on that. More than two dribbles... Forget it. Under 45% from the field. This is a guy who we wanted to create our offense as a, a, as a ball handler, shot creator. And he's not making 45% of those shots. If you had Jimmy Butler here, the conversation that would, that would dominate the radio waves, that would dominate the media, that would dominate all of the conversation around the NBA, would be the Sixers overpaid for Jimmy Butler and not only that, but then Butler's probably also having locker room issues because he doesn't like Ben Simmons. He and Ben Simmons don't fit together, which I I, I get it. I get it that that's like a big issue, and you know, and and I'll ne- you know, no one will ever know what 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 really happened behind closed doors. But my guess is that if things weren't if they weren't winning to the degree that that, that they should be winning. There would be a lot of issue with 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 Butler and probably with Simmons and, and that kind of stuff. And I'm not saying I blame Butler for that at all. I'm not saying that at all. But inevitably, the but Butler's lack of fit would have been dramatic with this version of the Sixers. The spacing would be no better. That it, it would be a, a huge mess, 
and we'd be trying and, and and the talk would be how can they get out of, of of another of another albatross contract at least the one that they have currently knows how to be a veteran knows how to come off the bench and 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 win in that way at least the other one makes sense in terms of bringing off the bench jimmy butler as good of a player as he is as uh, even though he's much better as a player than tobias harris is you cannot look at the shooting stats and tell me that Jimmy Butler would be a better fit for this current version of the Sixers than Tobias Harris is. And I'm not even saying that Tobias Harris is a tremendous, tremendous fit for the Sixers. But that's how bad of a shooting percentage Jimmy Butler has this season. Yeah, you raise good points. And the thing I'm going to use is both an analogy and then I'll kind of piggyback what you were saying about chemistry. But I'll use an anecdote here rather than an analogy. When I was playing my freshman year of high school football, we looked up to the captains on the varsity team, and the captains were appointed based upon seniority. So when you're a freshman and you're young, you listen to what these guys have to say. They're your leaders. They're the captains. They make the decisions, and you follow. Sophomore year, maybe new dictatorship, maybe a new regime, maybe the same captains, but you're still young and impressionable, so you listen. Junior year, as you start to get older, you kind of fulfill these these leadership spots. It becomes your team. And by the time you're a senior, which in my case, we were the captains, we led the team and people listened to us. The young kids were impressionable, but every so often there are players and kids and, and, and teammates that just have talent that transcends all of that. And when you have that talent, the confidence usually comes with it. In my opinion, Jimmy Butler, based upon his history, was the alpha dog on all of the teams he played for. And he was able to influence all of the younger players. He was able to intimidate them. That's the word I'll use. In Minnesota, I think it happened. In Chicago, it probably happened. That's why they didn't want to open their wallets and give him a max contract, despite him playing worth a max contract. In Minnesota, we know what happened there where the young guts, the young kids probably hated Jimmy Butler, and then that third string thing at practice happened. And in Philadelphia, my belief is that Jimmy Butler would have ruined the chemistry here. And I think that in Miami, he's able to intimidate a, a youthful group, right? So it's a lot of young, impressionable players. It's a new culture in Miami. And I think Jimmy Butler is the alpha top dog, so he can say whatever he wants and his word is law. I think in, in Miami, that's fine. And everything that glitters doesn't glow. So so that's, that's going to fade. Uh, but in Philadelphia, I think it would have been really problematic. So in a vacuum, you can look towards Jimmy Butler's contributions the season prior. In the fourth quarter, he was one of the best players in the NBA with Philadelphia last year. He was the closer. He had a ton of steals. I looked at his usage in comparison to Josh Richardson. The Sixers used Richardson almost the same amount as they used Butler, but Butler had a substantial, he had a significant amount more of points, more steals, more assists, everything of that sort. So, yeah, of course, in a vacuum, he, he, he could help this team a lot more than Tobias Harris in a sense, but this isn't a vacuum. You have to factor in other things like how he'd be in the locker room, the relationship between him and the head coach, the relationship between him and him and Ben Simmons. And I, I really, I honestly can say that I, I do not miss him. And I, I don't really think what he would have brought this year would have really translated the way it did last year. Yeah. And, and you know, we we could people can say like oh these are just butt hurt Philly fans, 
okay, but do you, do you have any proof that, like, 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 how, like, how do you answer to the fact that Jimmy Butler is shooting like below twenty five percent from three point range, and that the Sixers team is so devoid of any three point shooting, the guy you're paying all that money to would be failing that need so just so drastically and then you combine that with the off the court stuff like like i completely 100,000 percent agree with you the reason that it has worked in miami up to this point is because all the young players there know that this jimmy butler's team now if i if, if he doesn't like me i'm not gonna get as much playing time i'm gonna get traded whatever i gotta play and earn his respect and get him to like me just so I can stay on the rotation. And I think that's that's so, potentially what happened in Philadelphia. I think Joel Embiid kind of fell in line with Jimmy Butler, and he looked towards him as that kind of older brother role. But I think Ben Simmons was that player I equated to a transcending player that doesn't necessarily listen, and, and your word is not law because I know I have the talent and, and I'm confident enough to lead a team. So I think eventually both he and Jimmy Butler would have bumped heads because Jimmy Butler's word wouldn't have been law for Ben Simmons. And, you know just as well as I do, Brett Brown is very close with Ben Simmons and his family, so I think Brett Brown would have potentially also got involved in that feud. I can when I think of like Jimmy Butler and like Ben Simmons and like Brett Brown, I think of like Brett Brown hanging on to like one of their ankles for dear life while they like get dragged <laughs> along, and and, it, and it's just like screaming, like begging to get let go. Um, let let let's let's move on to our last topic of the night. Um, recent talk has been that to, that 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 but that Buddy Heald has has issued an ultimatum to the Kings: play me the right way, um, or you know get me in the starting lineup. I'm a starter in this league, or trade me. And it got me to thinking. Uh, you know, Buddy Heald won the three point contest. Um, and I guess before we get into this, let me just say this about Tobias Harris because the, the topic. Tobias Harris, by the way, for those who might think like, okay, but like this guy is just an anti Jimmy guy. Well, the numbers are the numbers are far, far, far more different than people realize. Tobias Harris is shooting thirty six percent from three this season. He's shooting twenty nine, not great, twenty nine percent from pull ups, but thirty eight percent in catch and shoot. Jimmy Butler is not even taking catch and shoot shots. He's not even taking them. So it, I, I just don't get how the scheme would have fit. But we're past that point in the argument. I just wanted to, I just wanted to compare and contrast that so that way at least we address that, that, that we, we balance out a little bit. Um, but it got me thinking that, you know, like how well would Buddy Heald fit on this Sixers roster? Um, Buddy Heald this season um, is averaging 20.4 points per game. Not 24, 20.4. Um, he's shooting 38.5% from 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 beyond the arc um he's shooting 39.6 on catch and shoots 37.5 from pull-ups buddy healed is uh 27 tobias harris i believe even though they they have such differences in, in their experience tobias harris is just a little bit older than buddy healed um so my, my question to you is would you trade Tobias Harris for Buddy Heald? I'm going to say yes. And I've been a Tobias Harris apologist for a little while now, and I think Tobias Harris is great for the Sixers team. And I think as of late, Philadelphia has really amped up what they're doing with Tobias Harris, and they're using him off screens a lot better and kind of unlocking his best game, similar to how the Los Angeles Clippers used him. 
But defensively, a lot of people are going to say that Buddy Hield is is inadequate on the defensive end, and Tobias Harris is almost as equally bad. And and I don't want to use bad as the main adjective here because neither of them are liabilities, but Tobias Harris throughout the duration of his career has posted defensive ratings of 112, 110.6, 110.5, 109.2, and, and Buddy Heald 110, 107, 107, 110. So, so defensively, th- there's not too much of a drop-off, but I think offensively, Buddy Heald just complements this Sixers team a little better. I, I, I think playing out of position may be detrimental for Tobias Harris. He's done a nice job lately taking defenders off the dribble, playing at the four. But I think for Buddy Heald, he is a very well-established shooter. Tobias Harris is more streaky, but Buddy Heald in, in every single season of his career has shot over 30%, 38% rather, on catch-and-shoot opportunities. And that's what Philadelphia's offense is predicated upon. It's, it's, it's a lot of three-point shooting. If their three-point shooting is falling, Philadelphia is one of the most dominant teams in the league. If it's not... Then they have to compensate elsewhere. That's where they struggle. But a guy like Buddy Heald as a catch-and-shoot option would be incredible for Philadelphia just because of how successful he is there. All around the perimeter, in the corner, above the break, on the wings, he is a well-established shooter, and, and, and that's what he does well. And contractually, he's making less money than Tobias Harris, so it could potentially offer a little bit of flexibility. So, Austin, I would be in for that. Yeah. I, you know, I defended Tobias Harris tooth and nail, and I truly believe that he's gotten an unfair shake here in Philly with the amount of uh, like the amount of slander that he gets. Because I think he's, you know, the people people. I, I I keep saying this to people who ask about it, um, whether that be like family, friends, or whoever I talk to about it. Um, you, you when you pay someone a max contract, right? You're doing a bad job if you're paying them on services that you expect them to reach. You're doing your job if you pay them for services that you believe that they can sustain. So no one's paying LeBron James max money to exceed career averages, right? You're ex- you're, expect- you're paying him max money because you expect him to be what he's always been, which is a superstar. When you pay... Um, Andrew, well, Andrew Wiggins is a bad example because they fucked that up. But but when when you put when you pay guys, um, there really isn't another great example I can think of the top of my head. Anyway, um, when when you give guys big money, most times if you're doing it the right way, it's because you're paying them for the belief that they can do what they've done and they've shown they can do in the past. Why would you ever pay someone for something that you don't know that they can do? Right? You you wouldn't do that. That yeah. wouldn't make a lot of sense. A, a good running organization right. wouldn't do that. Tobias Harris is doing basically exactly what he's done the past couple of years. People don't like it because he's not doing more than what he's done. But you're fooling yourself if you believe or if, if you believe that he was going to suddenly, oh, I'm getting paid eight, uh, $880 million. Well, I'm going to go average 26 now. That's not how that works. You pay a guy for what you know he can do, not what he hasn't proven. That was that was that was so philosophical when 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 you said that it all just made sense in my like that that was all building up to your final statement, and it just all made sense in my head there, and and, and I, right. I think 
you're right. There's a thing called myopia or nearsightedness, and a lot of fans fall victim to that. And that's a great, great point you make. You're, you're, I'll let you continue because that was, it was just powerful. <laughs> so, so with that being said, like I think Tobias Harris has done exactly what he's done in, in, in seasons past. Maybe he's not averaging every single point the exact same as he did get last year. Maybe it's a little bit of a, of like a fit issue. Maybe, you know, maybe he's just sort of trying to figure out how he can fit in with, 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 with Ben, Joe, Al, and, and so on. But largely for the most part, the numbers are where they've always been for him. Not a significant decline, not significantly ahead, exactly where they've always been. And in the end, you're paying him to be what he's always been, not for something that you don't know that he can be. So I think Tobias has done a really, really, really good job with this team. He's had numerous 30-plus point games. He stepped up when they needed somebody to step up and make big shots. He's closed for them down the stretch. He's been net floor spacer at, at about 36%. Having said that, 36% just isn't good enough. It isn't. You, you, you need him to get to that 38, 39%. And while I like, like, while like that kind of goes outside of what I just said, it's sort of a contradictory. It's not like he's missing shots that are tough shots to make. There are a lot of times where he's missing open looks. A lot of, a, mm-hmm. a lot of times where he's missing open looks. And so, that just can't happen with a team that's so devoid of shooting. And so as good as he's been, Buddy Heald would be just such a slap in the face, like perfect fit for this team. And a little less money, a little bit more production, but really fits the puzzle perfectly and really does what you need You need a guy at that wing spot to do. And for that reason, I would do the trade for Buddy Heald. I'm, I'm with you there. And I crunched a little bit of film and numbers today. And I think Philadelphia, like I mentioned previously, is trying to unlock Tobias Harris. Now, he's good in space, but he can't really create too much with his dribble. He, he doesn't create much space with just his dribble. So now Philadelphia has been using Joel Embiid primarily, but Al Horford as well, to free him with screens. And in 2018 with the Clippers, he came off of screens with 6.8% frequency and scored a total of 80 points with the Clippers in nearly 55 games, I believe. Uh, because, of course, he was traded to Philadelphia. Now, in the entire year, 2018, he scored 107 points off the screens. In 2019, thus far, he's coming off of screens with more frequency than he did in Los Angeles. And last year, it was around 6% frequency with Philadelphia. Now it's up to 7.2. He's already scored 72 points there, up through 55 games. And now he's on pace to meet 107, which was his total last year. So I think Philadelphia is trying to now incorporate him more offensively, free him, get him in space. But to your point, I think Buddy Heald, he has a niche, and, and, and that's just strictly shooting three-point shots. And I think as opposed to having, like I said, maybe Shake Milton and Al Horford, for example, as your primary catch-and-shoot th- three-point options, placing Buddy Heald there as opposed to any one of them two, it opens up your offense a lot more because he attracts attention. And like I said, if Philadelphia's making their threes, their offense is really dominant, and that's what Buddy Hill got paid to do. Right on. Exactly right. Um, before we wrap up, Brock, as always, it is it is a pleasure to, to begin this partnership on, on, on this podcast. 
very exciting um, to to have you on with with me now as a permanent co-host. Any parting words for the for the for the, for the uh, listeners? Not for the listeners, for you. I'm I'm appreciative of this opportunity, man. I'm grateful and and I enjoy talking Sixers basketball with you. I know my perception of you from months ago compared to now is completely different, but one of my one of my oh, no. one of my better <laughs> friends on TPL, and, and like I said, I'm I'm just grateful for this opportunity. I appreciate it. My man. All right, everyone. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Feed to Embiid. Um, as, you know, as always, thank you for listening. In the meantime, word from our sponsor. Do you like shotgunning beers? You want to increase your shotgun time at parties? Check out my boys at the King Cobra. King Cobra is a shotgunning tool that makes a perfect shotgunning hole under a second. Also a tab puller, vent puncher, and all fits on a keychain. For more information about the King Cobra, check them out on Instagram at the King Cobra Co. That's the King Cobra Co. And Cobra is all with a K. For 10% discount on our products, enter the code CHRISTACOBRA10, all caps, all one word. Pick up yours today. As always, drink responsibly, my friends, especially my young Brock, my my young co-host. And we will see you for the next episode of the Feed to Embiid.